Welcome back to Plenary Session. This is Real Life Edition. I'm joined in Plenary Session Studios in the HQ with Dr. Timothy Olivier. Timothy, it's good to see you. Good to see you. Hi, Vinny. How are you today? I'm doing really well. I'm doing really well. I always look forward to our chats, Plenary Session chats. Yeah. You know, recently we were having lunch with a colleague, an oncology colleague, and an oncology colleague said the best plenary sessions are the ones with Dr. Timothy Olivier. He did yeah, say that. Ma maybe he did that to, to uh, say uh, that to please me. Maybe, it's, it's maybe, possible. maybe, I mean, maybe he was. There is a high chance of. Maybe he was. But just, that was nice. That was. It was nice. nice for him to say. Yeah, yeah. Maybe it was just because you were there, but but I think there's some truth to it, and I think the truth is that you know we have different personalities. He said that. He said that there was a kind of equilibrium between uh, you maybe being more um, <laughs> what, what, what's the word uh, let's, let's, let's define yourself yeah let's define well, yourself. Oh, i'll just and, myself and, yeah, and, yeah. And, and me i mean yes different personalities but uh, we agree on on many topics on i think on most issues yeah but we are also have um, most probably uh, different ways to say it different ways to and say it. Um, that's all it is and i think that's what he was saying different ways to say it that's all it is it's all it is he for instance in the last episode i used an analogy of a men's restroom. And I've recently been to some men's restrooms that were simply, simply, simply filthy. And what I said was, when you go to a men's restroom and there's urine everywhere and you tell people like, look, I'm not asking for perfection, I'm just asking you to aim at the urinal. That's analogous to the state of oncology clinical trials, which is that people say you're asking for perfection. No, we're not. Just asking for appropriate control arms, appropriate post-protocol therapy. I want a trial to be relevant for the country in which you're seeking marketing authorization. I want a non-inferiority margin small enough that it makes sense. We're just asking for reasonable things. Perfection. Perfection would be the mega trials for everything. I think perfection would be like a recovery-style trial for everything with like significant interaction coefficients, etc. We're not asking for that. We're just asking for there clean some, studies. Some basic principle that we are losing. Yeah. And, uh, Still, it can be done. So we have example of great trials, and we will talk. We'll be talking about that. Yeah, you know, I was I started a thread recently about trials that I really liked, like mm. um, Hodgkin's lymphoma studies, AAVD. Sorry, A. No, let's not say A. I'm talking about trials I really like here, not AAVD. I'm yeah, talking about yeah, yeah. ABVD two verse four and twenty verse thirty. That's a classic trial for early favorable Hodgkin's disease. Mm. You know, that's just one of many. But today we're here to pick up where we left off. We're picking up in the book. Yeah. So. There's just one little paragraph, but I think you want to speak about that um, before moving to the next chapter. I see. About multiplicity. Oh, so, okay. okay. So maybe, because there are other things in, in the book, but maybe if you can just talk about bevacizumab. You did a work that you presented in ASCO with Derek Tao, I think. Mm -hmm. um, and and uh, it's about yeah. the... Uh, and colleagues and, and, yeah. Uh, yeah, and others. Yeah. And... Um, it's about really the portfolio of trials and, and about multiplicity. Maybe you yeah. can speak about so that. So this is a really something that, got, that, you know, that I think, and, and I want to say that this is something where you know, I was getting interested in this, Jonathan Kimmelman was getting interested in this, a few people getting interested in this, this idea of the portfolio of trials and why it matters. And you know, just as a simple rule, if you run a really large randomized controlled trial, you get a null result. Somebody might say, hey, look, there's this subgroup here, and it kind of works in that subgroup. And the first thing you'd say is like, whoa, how many subgroups are you looking at? Like, I looked at like 20, 30 subgroups. And they're like, uh, you know, mm, I don't know about that subgroup there because you looked at 20 or 30. By chance alone, some subgroups are going to look a little bit favorable. And what you're going to want to see is I want to know a couple things. One, is there a statistically significant interaction coefficient for that subgroup? In other words, is there really fundamentally a different treatment effect in that subgroup than other subgroups? And the next thing I'd really like to see is a replication study in that subgroup. I'd like to see you validate that it works in that subgroup. And so that's how we interpret a single large randomized trial where somebody's kind of after the fact looking at subgroups. But, you know, there's something analogous to a single large randomized trial 
It's the portfolio of all the randomized studies a company's running. And many drugs, the portfolio might be three or four randomized studies. But some drugs, a portfolio might be 20, 30, 40, 50, 100 randomized studies. And maybe it doesn't even make sense to think about an individual drug, but the portfolio of all the related drugs. What's the portfolio of randomized trials for PD-1 or PD-L1 axis inhibitors? Nevo, I Nevo, Pembro, Durva, Atezo, Semiplumab. Um, Durva, I hope I said Durva. Durva. Uh, Avelumab. Avelumab. Uh, and uh, what's oh, the those. one from China that never came to the market? Oh, yeah, yeah. Balistamab or something? Yeah, yeah. Balistamab or something? Balistamab is another one. That's another in, one. Uh, and, but there's yet another one. Gynecologic cancer. Yeah, so there's so many. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So this is a portfolio. The companies are running a portfolio of studies. And maybe we can just focus on one drug, Avastin or Bevacizumab. There's a portfolio of randomized controlled trials. There's many randomized controlled trials. There may be dozens and dozens and dozens of randomized trials. And every time we interpret a single Avastin study, we interpret it in isolation. People tell stories, and these are the stories they tell, that Avastin in non-small cell lung cancer works really well when you pair it with Carbo and Paclitaxel. That's a paper by Alan Sandler. But it doesn't work well when you pair it with cisplatin and gemcitabine. That's the Avail study. Car uh, Avastin works really well when you combine it with IFL, but it doesn't work so well with Folfox. That's a Lensalt study. So we start to tell ourselves stories like why is Avastin working well here and not here? And why does it work well in cervical, but doesn't work well in breast? And why does it work here and here? But maybe what we're, what we're missing is the forest. We're missing it for the trees. Each tree is a randomized trial. The forest is all the randomized studies. And maybe there's something to be said for looking across the portfolio of all the Avastin studies and trying to make sense of each individual trial in the portfolio. And so that's what we do in this study. This was initially, I think, an abstract by Nate Gay, who was a Hemong fellow at OHSU, now a proud Spokane, Washington, private practice oncologist. Derek Tao, who's now fellow at the, the MD Anderson, making cancer history. That's their slogan. And, uh, and myself. And we basically looked at a meta-analysis of randomized controlled trials of Avastin. There are many, many trials. And we asked ourselves, if you, used, if you saw each trial in isolation using a nominally significant statistical p-value of 0.05, how many had a significant PFS and OS? And now what if you actually looked across the portfolio and adjusted for the sheer number of randomized trials you were mm. running? We chose one adjustment. It's the Bonferroni correction. Yeah. It's very stringent. I mean, I'll be first to admit, it's a very stringent test. There are other ways to correct for false discovery across a portfolio that are not as stringent. And I encourage other people to do that too. But we're, pick we're just picking this to show you as an example what happens to the portfolio. And what we found was, I forget off the top of my head, but I think like the majority of studies had PFS significance. Yeah. And a good chunk, like a third, had OS significance. Yeah, seven at OS. <laughs> seven out of what, 58 uh, or something? Uh, oh, 46. 46. And, uh, but when you adjusted by Bonferroni, the PFS remained in, in, in only yeah, in some. 10 or 15%, but the OS nearly totally vanished. Yeah, just one. Just one study so retained. From seven to one. Yeah. yeah. And so what's the point here? The point here is that which is more plausible when we really sit back and look at it? Avastin has global sales of about, you know, maybe $100 billion over many years. And it's a vascular endothelial growth factor drug. It has consistently a lousy single agent response rate. It doesn't do that much by itself. In all but the rarest instances, I'm aware, GBM, Lazarus, Ken Moments, but in all but the rarest instances, it doesn't have much single agent activity. It works in some trials with IFL in the Hurwitz study. It doesn't work in, with Folfox in the Lensalt study. You know, it works um, with, with carbopaclitaxel in Alan Sandler's ECOG study. It, it doesn't work with CISGEM. Wh which is more parsimonious, that it's this weird drug that sometimes works depending on the backbone and doesn't work with the other backbone in the same tumor type? Or is it a drug that affects the way the imaging looks? 
It affects vascular endothelial growth factor. It affects the way the imaging looks. So it really does, and some people have some change in PFS. But is it fundamentally a drug that just doesn't improve overall survival? That's why when it does succeed, it's marginal, 1.5 months-ish. And when it doesn't succeed, it fails. And if you look across the portfolio, those 1.5 months just look like, you know, random chance. And, and I guess I don't know the answer, but this introduces this idea of multiplicity, which is that the sheer number of times you test a question or a related question in oncology um, is important for the relevance of an individual study. And I guess I'll just say one last thing, which is that maybe 30, 40 years ago, it didn't matter. It wasn't relevant because we just couldn't afford to run all mm -hmm. these randomized control trials. But now in a paper that I did with uh, Chris McCabe and, and Sean Milan-Cody in Nature Views Clinical Oncology, we showed that the current market conditions, they're making so much money per approval that it actually, make, actually makes sense for them to run these portfolios of trials where even fluke false positive results mm -hmm. can justify the expenditure of the entire portfolio. So that's the idea of multiplicity in this, in this chapter. Yeah, in this chapter. And I think it's related to other parts in the book where, where you really point out that it's really important to look at other trials. When, when you have one trial, one drug, it's always interesting to see the results in other And recently we did some um, new work that are not on, on the book on duration of treatment, but it's the same idea to look at, at other trials in the same space to, <coughs> to get a better idea of what is going on. Absolutely, absolutely. And um, since the publication of the book, Logan Powell and myself have an article about multiplicity, I think, of the European Journal of Clinical Investigation. Yeah, yeah. yeah and, and one of the themes was that when you look in the observational nutritional literature, when you look in the literature on, say, vitamin D, beta carotene, blueberries, coffee, why does it flip-flop so much? And one, and I, I've talked about it in my other show, so I won't, I, I'll be a very quick summary of the point. If you have many, many investigators probing a retrospective observational data set, like the NHANES data set, that links nutritional exposures to endpoints like mortality, and many, 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 many people are probing it, and they're all adjusting for their own variable constellations that they think are important, and, and they only report the results if they're interesting and provocative, and those results are only published if they're thought to be interesting and provocative. You have a selection filter for a lot of trial and error, a lot of monkeys hitting the, the typewriter, and then you're picking for the monkeys that have put together a coherent sentence. They're not doing it because it's there, it's coherent because it's just random chance. And in other words, you're going to find nutritional exposures yield both positive and negative outcomes. And this is work that has been discussed. I think I've discussed this on a lecture uh, on this channel where I talked about the work by John Ioannidis. I talked about some similar work by Brian Nozick, et cetera, that kind mm. of, that builds this claim. And how does it apply to oncology? Well, with randomized trials, you can't do that. No one can run 100,000 randomized trials on the exact same question and cherry pick the ones they want to talk about until you start talking about portfolios of trials and until you start giving them so much money per approval that it makes sense for them to run these portfolios of trials. So now Avastin is really similar to, I think, blueberries in NHANES or coffee in NHANES because we have so many Avastin trials. And just to add, it was just a published trial, so. Correct. But I don't want. No, 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 no. I just I think it's an important point, which is that the, the analysis that we did only looked at the published trials that we could easily find. Mm. There are many, many more trials, and the, what, the right way to adjust for multiplicities across the entire yeah, portfolio, yeah. both visible and invisible, yeah. but the full portfolio, only the companies really know that portfolio, mm. and maybe with clinicaltrials.gov, but it's a little bit tricky. Okay, thank you very much for ending this chapter. This is chapter nine? Yeah, it was chapter nine. Mm. So we'll be jumping into chapter 10. I think it's the favorite chapter of many oncologists in a sense. Okay. Um, the name of the chapter- It's an oncologist, oncology, it's, onco it's, it's the chapter four, 
the real oncologist. Principle of oncology practice, and I think why people really like it, it's because you go back to really basic things that yeah. I think are, are lacking nowadays, more mm. and more. Right. I th so, so maybe you can do a short introduction, and the first thing you will be explaining is the principle of lines of treatment and the difference between adjuvant, metastatic, <coughs> refractory settings, the level, the level of evidence you need in, in each, each setting. And I think there's a common theme in, in, in your thinking is about a continuum of things. Yeah. Um, you talk, um, in, in many instances, you, you, you take this kind of, um, of, um, of thinking approach and you have the, the same approach here. So maybe you can, you can start on, on these uh, themes. Okay, yeah, I think, and what is this called? Principles of Oncology Practice yeah. Chapter 10. Yeah been a long time since I've looked at it, <laughs> but, uh, you know, cause I'm actually not preparing for these, these things. He, he is literally asking me questions. I'm blind to, we didn't yeah, talk about yeah. this beforehand. I prepare the questions, based on the book. but he didn't tell me, he didn't it's, tell me. And I haven't looked at the book in a long time, but, single but blind. Yeah, sing, it's single blind. It's single blind. Um, but you know, but why did I write this chapter? I think for anybody who practices oncology talks to, you know, the key figures in oncology and reads a lot of the literature, you will see that there are some unspoken unwritten, sometimes unwritten principles of oncology that we've always agreed to for, you know, quarter century, half a century. We've agreed to these principles of oncology. Um, <clears throat> some of these principles, you know, I might have been the first to maybe articulate. Other of these principles, somebody had already articulated it. Um, uh, maybe verbally, they passed it on to fellows, but they never wrote it down, or some of them may have been written down. But I'm trying to pull together these principles because these principles, I think, are super important for how to think and read and interpret oncology clinical trials. The first one, I think, is a general principle of biomedicine, which is the sicker someone is, the more reasonable it is to give something a shot with sort of medium or low or modest credibility data. And the healthier someone is, the more you want to see stronger high-level data. And why? Because, you know, there are many ways to die, but there's just one way to be alive. You know, that actually, in, in evolution, there's more ways to be dead than alive. It's harder to be alive than dead. Um, and, 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 and that has sal salience in this, in this question because somebody who is healthy and you start doing things to them to try to improve their health, bioplausible things, you have a great risk of actually harming them, harming them, wasting their time, wasting their money, hurting them. And the chance you can actually make a healthy person better off is very small. The chance you can make a healthy, asymptomatic person better off is very, very small. And the chance that you might be able to make somebody who has, you know, massive metastatic disease um, that is deeply symptomatic from it better off. I mean, I think that's that's even that's much more possible. So I think what I talk about in this. Yeah. So uh, that's the justification <laughs> you you make for having a, a very high level of evidence in the adjuvant setting. Yeah. Maybe you can talk about the difference between adjuvant and metastatic setting, right. and also the dr drugs which are working in the adjuvant setting and metastatic setting. You're talking about that here. Yeah. Um, so the adjuvant setting is defined as typically, and here I'm going to use solid tumor for the most part. We're going to think about breast and lung and colon, where you have surgically extirpated all of the tumor. And if you scan somebody, you use the most sophisticated imaging, you will not find residual disease. And so you uh, have a person that you have surgically rid of disease, their NED by any sort of conventional measurement. But you do know that a fraction of those people with enough years will have recurrence. They'll have recurrence and some of those people will die. And that might not even be a small fraction, it might be a high fraction. And so the principle of adjuvant therapy is you need to give a drug to increase the curative fraction, to take some of those people in whom the disease was going to recur and kill them 
and flip it off and kill it so that the disease doesn't come back and kill them. There's also going to be some people in whom the disease comes back and kills them anyway, no matter what you do. And there's going to be the people in whom you've already cured. So that's the adjuvant kind of biology question. Metastatic disease is by definition in solid tumors, disease that you can measure. It has measurable target lesions, lesions that you can see, you can measure, you can keep track of. There, the typical goals are the response goal. You want to prove that you can shrink that. That's showing you drug activity. The time to progression or progression-free survival is sort of the net, next intra-patient metric. And then finally, you want to improve survival and quality of life. And here, the biological task is I just need something to kill some of this, to keep it at bay for a little bit, and I might be able to buy the patient more time. In the adjuvant setting, the biological task is often very strict. It's I need to eradicate a microscopic cell. I need to increase curative fraction and eradicate some cells. That's a difficult task. And since the publication of the book, I think since, or was it in the book? I don't know if we put it in the book. Eddie Maldonado. It's what? It, it was in the book? I don't know what you're okay. talking about. Eddie Maldonado, Scott Parsons, and I, we did an analysis of metastatic yeah. and adjuvant on it's the same the question. Book, yeah. It's in the book? Oh, yeah. thank goodness. Thank goodness. You know, it was tough for me because some of these things I think we were about to publish like right when the book was being written, um, and I'm glad I added in the last draft. So you're going to talk about that, so we'll come back to that. So no, you, you, okay. you are talking about that now. I mean, the number of drugs that are working in the adjuvant setting, and th that's the point you were? That was the point I was yeah, going to yeah. make. And so what we did was we picked the three most common cancers. We extracted the number of drugs that are US FDA approved in the, in the um, metastatic setting or recommended by the NCCN, how many have OS benefits, all, by all those metrics, you get a set of drugs. How many of the drugs that succeed in the metastatic setting succeed in the adjuvant setting? And it is roughly one in three. And how many of the drugs, of all the drugs that succeed in the adjuvant setting, how many ultimately have an approval or use in the metastatic setting? And it's roughly 100%. So every drug that works in the adjuvant setting also works in the metastatic setting. But of the drugs that work in the metastatic setting, about a third work in the adjuvant setting. So what does that mean? It's harder to be an it's adjuvant harder, drug. Yeah. It's harder to be an adjuvant drug. You're going to be a better drug. Just take, um, for instance, irenotecan. Yeah. Irenotecan has a survival benefit in colon cancer metastatic, but an adjuvant, it not, don't work. Not here, yeah. Uh, cetuximab, don't work in the adjuvant, but it works in the metastatic colon cancer. Avastin, it doesn't, work in, the, it doesn't work in the adjuvant setting, and it... It probably also may not work. May not. It may not. It may not work in the metastatic setting either. But it certainly don't work in the adjuvant setting. Um, and 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 that pattern is true. Sunitinib in RCC, it works in the metastatic setting, but uh, in the adjuvant setting, me think it don't work. There's multiple randomized control trials, yeah, and one has a DFS. Sure, but I think it doesn't work, and it doesn't improve OS. So what's my point here? Adjuvant, it's harder biologically. The person has more to lose and less. Uh, I mean. Or the person, there's more of a chance you'll definitely make them sick because they feel fine. You've surgically extirpated the tumor. They cannot have symptoms from a tumor that cannot be detected. Um, and uh, it's a tougher biological task. Meanwhile, with somebody metastatic disease, there are lines. There's the first line, the first thing we give de novo metastatic disease uh, and uh, de novo stage four or recurrent relapse metastatic disease. There's the second line. And there's the third line. And as a general rule, as you go down the lines, the PFS gets shorter, um, the OS gets a little bit shorter, um, the response uh, rates uh, get lower. Uh, and also, I think as a general rule, the 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 less the more your advanced line, the less data, the less strong data you have. Correct. In most tumors, we so, have randomized yeah. trials on the front line. Maybe for the second line, by the third line, you know, you're reaching for a response rate study, a phase two. If you're and you're lucky to get that in this met in this business. These days, since the writing of the book, I think we've had a little bit more third-line randomized trial studies, um, but you know they're modest mm -hmm. and they're and they're few and far between. The next principle you, you are talking about is um, you take the example of <coughs> sunitinib, treating until progression. Yeah, does it make sense? I think it's also a very 
um, provocating uh, concept uh, that will sound very new for many, many listeners. Many listeners, huh? Yeah. Well, I'll tell you when I first thought of this, you know, when I was in my first month at the NIH, they signed me to the Georgetown rotation. I was down there at Georgetown. And um, they kept talking about PFS, PFS, PFS. I said, who's this PFS? I got to figure it out. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and of course, we talked about that. And that's in chapter two and three where I explained what PFS really is. And I, and I did all that learning. And then I was struck by something. I realized that as a general rule in oncology, and this was mostly derived in the era of cytotoxic drugs, once the patient experienced disease progression, you stopped therapy and you switched them to another drug. And it derived in an era of cytotoxic drugs where you thought that progression was a reasonable marker of this, this tumor is resistant to this drug. Why? It might have been shrinking, it might have been slowing the growth, but once we have reliably shown that it's growing on this cytotoxic drug, I cannot in good conscience continue to give the drug. I believe the tumor has become resistant to the drug. I'm going to switch. That was sort of the logic. But my question was an empirical question. I'm an empiricist, which was every time you switch when they progress, is that the best time to switch? Should you have switched sooner? Should you switch later? You know, are there instances where switching doesn't make sense? And so I took this question, I went to Tito Fojo, who was our program director at the NCI and who would teach us this. And it was like my second week of being a fellow. I said, Tito, why do we, why do we, why is progression this arbitrary 120% line? Why is that the basis for switching drugs? And he said, well, he said that my friend, that's a good question, <laughs> pull up a chair. And I said, pull up a chair. And then I fell down the rabbit hole and he kind of showed me a little bit, which was this idea that maybe it's actually shouldn't be in many instances, and he had done some work, very elegant work, about growth rate constant, and he picked a tumor where you don't get a lot of tumor shrinkage, but you do get some delta in the growth rate kinetics of the tumor, and that's kidney cancer, metastatic kidney cancer. And he showed that when you're on Sutent, the growth rate is slower, then when you're off Sutent, it's growing a little bit faster, and then we have this progression line, 120%, and the moment you pass that line, does Sutent no longer slow the growth rate? And he believed that actually it still slows the growth rate. And you're better off taking Sutent post-progression than stopping it, and then you'll be back to the growth rate off Sutent, okay? And he always wanted to do a study of Sutent, randomized, yeah. and, then, and then when you progress, you used to get Exitinib after, after the access trial, um, versus just stay on Sutent. And he thought just staying on Sutent might be superior. I, if, go ahead. Oh, so, sorry. No, I think there is a point here. You, yeah. you cite the resist criteria. Yeah. And the, the resist criteria are clear. They are not here to guide clinician, uh, clinical decision of course, uh, and you say th that here, yeah. if you have a randomized clinical trial and that the treatment shift is based on pro PFS, that's logical to follow this. Right. But it, it's not a, a universal principle. Correct. If you are in a country where you don't have access to other Correct. drugs, you, you make this point in the book. Yeah. Absolutely. <clears throat> like if you have RCC and the only drug you have is sunitinib and they progress and it's like, it depends on the cadence of the progression, depends on the tempo of the progression, depends on what the disease was doing before. And if you think the disease was growing really fast, you put them on sunitinib and it starts growing really slow, you'd be a fool to stop it when it progresses if that's the only drug you have. Keep them on sunitinib. So resist actually explicitly states, this is not meant to tell you what to do in the clinic. And if you're in a country that's resource limited, you might want to treat beyond progression. And as you know, in the serafinib sharp study, they did do that. They treated some people beyond progression. Mm -hmm. And so, um, but they didn't do that in, uh, in Brave 150 and all the follow-up studies and the Lenva study, et cetera. The duration is shorter and shorter. Getting shorter yeah. and shorter. Um, so what's my point here? My point here is that <clears throat> we take for granted that progression-free survival is one, a meaningful measure to patients. That's not true. And I think we debunked that in earlier chapters. But we also take for granted that that's the time you should switch. 
but I don't know, and there's been no empirical studies that have really randomized people to switching at different moments, either at a lower threshold, either at a higher threshold, staying on drugs indefinitely or stopping. And, you know, a lot of this came out of the era of cytotoxic drugs where I will concede, you know, kind of made sense. That was what they had. That was, these are simple tools, response rate, you know, and PFS and the Mortel work. It's simple. It's for a simple time where we have to make simple decisions. But now we have drugs that are dirty TKIs that hit the tyrosine kinem all over the place that change growth rate kinetics in the absence of deep responses. Should those follow the same paradigm? I don't know. And so this is really about getting the reader to break something in their mind. And that thing in their mind is, you know, I only saw this question because I was a second week fellow. You know, if I was a 10 year oncologist, I may not even realize why am I using this as the moment to switch? Do I really know this is the moment? And of course, you know, the counter argument is gonna be like, well, sometimes, you know, you can see they were under well-controlled and all of a sudden they progress. Mm. Yeah, mm. absolutely. Mm. Like that's a different cadence. They were well-controlled, it was shrinking, it was doing small. Mm. And then I had one scan was like, mm, I'm not so sure. And the next one, boom, floored progression. Of course, something is not working anymore. That makes sense to me. But that's different than slow, steady, indolent progression, which you see often with RCC, PNET, um, even some melanoma, you know, mm -hmm. before we mm -hmm. had really more effective drugs with melanoma. You see it with some tumors. Tumors are, as you said before recently, they're heterogeneous, heterogeneous. They, they have different behavior. You need to understand the tumor, you know, uh, to some degree. Okay, so I think PFS is a good introduction to your next point. You, in your next point, you will be talking about two things where you really <laughs> think that PFS is not justification for, for, for treating. Even, yeah. even in those advocating for PFS, you think in those two instances, it's more difficult to, to justify. Yeah. It's, it's combining treatment yeah. or extending treatment. And you give some example, maybe you can build upon, uh, upon that. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, there are two instances in oncology where I think even the most ardent proponent of PFS must concede, it don't make a lot of sense to use PFS as the metric. There's two instances. And one to me is combining drugs that were previously used in sequence. If you were gonna take Nevo and when you progress, try Ipi, and then you wanna go Nevo Ipi, it doesn't make sense to me to show that Nevo-Ipi the combo has a better PFS than Nevo. Because when you exhaust Nevo-Ipi the combo and you look in your pockets, there's lint. And when you exhaust Nevo, you still have Ipi. So it should be PFS2 at a minimum, or it should be OS and health-related quality of life across the journey of the cancer. So that to me is one situation combining drugs. I think I referenced that George Sledge paper. We'll come to that. Yeah, oh, you can... Yeah, mention you, it now. You can mention it now. I think it's very... <laughs> yeah. Like, you know, with Checkmate 67, 067, the mm -hmm. Larkin paper, that the, the investigators tell, tell the audience, Nevo Ippi has a higher PFS than Nevo. Ergo, you ought to do it. You ought to do it. It has a better PFS. You ought to do it. But, you know, I would just give Ippi later. Why don't I just do that? Meanwhile, two decades before, in a paper that came out by George Sledge and colleagues in 2003, yeah. which I believe I talked about with George Sledge when I interviewed him, mm -hmm. it was a cooperative group study and it was anthracycline taxane versus taxane, then anthracycline. It actually, I think, had a third arm. Anthracycline, yeah, three arms. It's three arms. Antra, pacli, or combination. Or combination. Yeah. And if you got one anthra, then you got the taxane. And if you got the taxane, yeah. then you got anthracycline. Crossover was uh, yeah. built in. Built in. Yeah. So it was a very nice study, which is yeah. like, which sequence is better than the combo? And what the authors conclude in that paper, and, and I'm paraphrasing what I vaguely remember their quote, was, uh, we find that the sequential single agent administration of drugs had the same overall survival and better quality of life 
than the combination. Even though the combination had a deeper response and a longer time to progression, we favor the sequential use of single agents because you get the same OS and you get less toxicity. That's what they wrote, yeah. more or less. I think this is a topic we will be talking again in, in future chapters. It's, it's um, also pertain, pertaining to the post-progression treatment, to crossover, mm, but it's, yeah. it's, it's very important, this kind of combining treatment. I mean, it's obvious, almost obvious we'll get a better PFS. I don't know what you think, but uh, it's almost gu guarantee. I, I think mean. I use analogies in the book, like let's imagine you're going on a backpacking trip and in the backpacking trip, you got those freeze-dried lunches. You got breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And it's almost guaranteed that if you walk and you're going to walk like 40 miles, let's say you're making a big loop through the enchantment, enchant, you know, the enchantments in, in Washington State or your big hiking loop in maybe the volcano in, uh, in outside Reykjavik or something. You've got a big hike and you got three packed lunches. You could, at your first stop, just fill out all three bags and eat breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And I guarantee you, you will feel more full and the time until you're hungry will be longer. But when you're hungry and you go look in your bag, you'll be SOL. And <laughs> I was about to say what it is, but I'm trying not to swear on these podcasts. But what I mean good, to say good, is good. you'll be good. I don't know what it is. Shit out of luck. So you'll, be shit, you'll, be shit out of, you'll be shit out of luck. No, sorry, I had to say. I had to say just one. Okay, sorry. Okay, okay. Now we're going back. PG-13 podcast. PG-13 podcast. Okay. <laughs> so, you know, I mean, you get my point. You eat all your meals. You eat your breakfast, lunch, and dinner. It's gonna be, you're going to be more full. In fact, you might be too full. Maybe it's bit sleepy possible a bit sleepy you'll be a bit yeah. sleepy but the time until you're hungry might be much longer than if you go a while eat breakfast go a while eat lunch go a while mm. eat dinner but the real question isn't you know what was the time until the first hunger or what was how full did i feel it was like when you finished the thing were you able to complete it and what was your time mm. you know that's mm. the overall survival in the analogy and so you know to me it's obvious it's so obvious that even if you think pfs is meaningful if you lose a salvage drug because you combine it up front pfs is not an appropriate metric that's obvious okay so extending treatment so yeah next yeah. I mean, extending treatment, I think, comes back to the fact that throughout medicine, there have been many trials of like fixed course, four versus unlimited. And sometimes when you give unlimited chemotherapy, the people had a longer time until progression. Um, they were, it, it took them longer to get to the next treatment, but you were, they were actively getting treatment. And if we did four versus, I believe in small cells, well, four versus six was the randomized trial, and six actually delayed the time until the next treatment, but four had equivalent overall survival. So we said that's why we do four mm. of carboitope mm. in small cell. We don't mm. continue it indefinitely. And we know across cancers, if you continue drugs indefinitely, you will often improve PFS. But if you don't improve OS, then why have the therapeutic burden and the toxicity? That was the history of oncology. But that's changed totally in the, the era of the, maintenance the, yeah, therapy. The, the interpretation has changed. Yeah. Interpretation has changed. changed. Yeah. Now people say the maintenance therapy delayed the time. What was that study oh, recently? Oh, yeah. Delaying the time to, to, to next treatment. Yeah. But, but you're on treatment. treatment. But you're on a treatment. You're on a treatment. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah. There yeah. was an, I forget what it was recently. I think it was in multiple myeloma. Of course. Oh, they're the, yeah. one of the most egregious fields. Um, and which I discussed on a prior podcast. But I mean, yes, they say, oh, it delays the time of the next treatment, but you're taking a treatment. Mm. You're taking a treatment. Maybe it was um, bendamustine, rituxan, ibrutinib. It was Shine, maybe? They also said maybe, that? Maybe. Because uh, it's a sure. fixed course. But I mean, the, the general point is, when you compared a fixed course against indefinite treatment, PFS is not suitable. Because in a fixed course, you get a benefit, and that benefit is a huge treatment holiday. Who wouldn't want a treatment holiday? If you continue treatment indefinitely, it's not sufficient to show that PFS is better, you gotta show OS is better or health-related quality of life across the journey has to also be better. Yeah, and about the journey, I, I just want to mention the work by Alison Aslam, 
you prove that the quality of life was not at all captured during the whole journey of the patient. Yeah. I mean, it's not in the book, but maybe it's good to mention it. Yeah, which is that, um, you know, after we were writing the book, we, I, I wanted to make this point, which is that people say, you know, we measured quality of life. And then I had Alison Haslam, who, who, who's a you know, stellar person, works with me. She analyzed every quality of life study she could find in a, in a subset of, of randomized studies. And she asked, like, in someone's cancer journey, how long is the journey? How many months did they live? How long did they live? And how long did this trial measure their quality of life? And it's like, journey this long? And the, measured this long. I, I, the, the audio listeners will see. The journey is very long. And the mm. time we measure is very short, just mm. the upfront time. Mm. And so when we talk about health-related quality of life in a trial, we're really talking about a very a snapshot health-related quality of life, like up until they progress. And that's not cancer across the whole journey. You know, I think it's very important when, when you have trials that add a line of therapy. I mean, yeah. you add a line, but that, that means that you will have the, the other treatment later. Yeah. So you have to capture the quality of life over, over all the duration, over all the journey, just not the first treatment. You used to give drug A, then B, and then you combine them A, B, and maybe you get a better response, and so initially you feel even better. But when it stops working, your quality of life will go terrible because you have progressive disease, and the doctor has nothing left, nothing left. So to me, you have to measure quality of life over the whole journey. In fact, that's what it means to have quality of life. Mm. Uh, I, think, I don't think we found maybe just one example was kind of close, but most of it is delinquent measurement. Mm. Um, and why? Because you know they're going to say, oh, it's very hard to measure the post. Mm. I know it's hard. I know it's hard. That's why, you know? You got to do a better job. Or actually, the real reason is that's why overall survival is such a good endpoint mm. because it actually is the one that's easier to measure that actually mm. counts for the whole journey. And then the last thing I would say is, and I, have, I don't know if we've said, I, said, I didn't say this in the book for sure, which is that drugs that improve health-related quality of life, you know what they also do? They tend to improve OS. You know what I mean? People talk about like, oh, quality of life is so important. It's like a meaningful endpoint in and of itself. I'm like, yeah, sure, it is true. But to be perfectly honest with you, there are not many drugs that really, really don't improve OS mm -hmm. and also improve health-related quality of life. Mm -hmm. You know, Comfort One, myelofibrosis, ruxolitinib, had had the, you know, patient-reported outcome was initially improved. It got approval, but it also went on to improve overall survival. You know, it's hard for me to think of a really, and you know what, if you're a listener out there and you tell me, tell me what drug, what drug in cancer has a great health-related quality of life mm -hmm. benefit that doesn't at all improve all-cause mortality? Interesting. I mean, maybe they'll yeah. say Ondansetron, but I'm talking yeah. about cancer drug. Okay, yeah. Ondansetron. Sure, yeah, okay, yeah. I'll give you yeah. Ondansetron. But maybe even Ondansetron, if it was rigorously studied, it might have an OS benefit because you could push the chemo a little bit yeah. more. Possible. Possible. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, that's the question to you guys. So, in other words, we have a, we have a metric OS, and we have another metric, health-related quality of life. They're not measuring it properly. They're measuring just the snapshot at the beginning. Mm -hmm. The next point, I think yeah. it's, it's also referring to the, the continuum continuum of, of um, continuum thinking that you are very often referring to. How you deal with patients that are asymptomatic? Yeah, you know, it's a great question. And there's so many conditions, cancer conditions, with an asymptomatic stage. There's of course MBL, then CLL asymptomatic, then you know follicular lymphoma asymptomatic, uh, MGUS smoldering asymptomatic, asymptomatic. Um, you can even have metastatic cancer. You can have kidney cancer and a few pulmonary mass, just really asymptomatic. And in some tumor types, we have randomized control trials that ask, is it better to treat someone when they're asymptomatic versus treating them when they eventually manifest symptoms? And I went through many of those trials in this book, yeah. um, and almost all of them show that by treating early, you just increase the duration of treatment yeah. But you don't make people live longer, live better. And yeah. you just take a healthy person and treat them. And so in my mind, the burden is on the treater 
prove that treating somebody when they feel fine with low volume disease is better than just watching them really closely with scans. Also, you are also making the point here that in many randomized clinical trials, people are usually symptomatic. <clears throat> so it's the same situation. If you have a patient that is not exactly fitting with your trial, you have more flexibility, flexibility in a sense to yeah. maybe watch the patient. You agree with that? I agree with you. Yeah. I mean, most, most trials take people who are symptomatic. Why? Because it was the symptom that let you find the disease. Um, but we do now with the rise of scans have so much asymptomatic disease. But let me give the listener one good example that arose since the publication of the book, which is um, the cooperative group study where they randomized people with smoldering myeloma to Revlimid or observation. And some of them eventually progressed to myeloma. And then the observation arm was given chemotherapy. And of course, but if you, were on, if you had smoldering and you got Revlimid, and by the way, smoldering by definition is asymptomatic, because if they had symptoms, yeah. they'd have endocrine yeah. damage, they have myeloma often. Um, most people with smoldering myeloma, they don't feel anything from it. You put them on Revlimid, the question is, do you delay the time until they get the next treatment? And the, the study said yes, they had a longer PFS than observation. But then the, the trialists had a second endpoint, overall survival, which is the right endpoint. Yeah. But they didn't. They crossover. Yeah. I know. I know. They didn't continue the trial as they had pre-specified and stated. They actually did a... Um, uh, uh, an amendment, uh, an amendment to the study, and unblinded everyone and crossed them over the active arm, which polluted the whole study. And now the study, you know, has and I think we talked about this in last. This is the crossover yeah, yeah, error. Yeah. It hasn't proven fundamental efficacy, and you know, crossing everyone over. Um, and this is different. It's not that you're crossing them over when they progressed. Those people should have been treated and measured OS. This is crossing over the smoldering people yeah, who have not yeah. yet progressed. So slightly different. So, so, so the point I want to make clear, maybe you can yeah. explain. Yeah. For a patient with asymptomatic, you don't have a you don't have a clear rule, but <laughs> it will depend on the tumor type, on the data you have, how you will. Uh, I mean, I think first of all, I think we have to be honest. It is rare. Yeah. I mean, most people with metastatic disease, their stuff, um, they they are symptomatic. But I do think that you have to ask yourself how many people in the randomized trial you have um, were. Um, I mean, let me give you some examples to maybe make it more concrete. I mean, in the era of CT screening lung cancer, you might find some asymptomatic extended stage small cell, and I think you might want to act upon that. But I think you should also recognize the fact that CT screening for lung cancer, that might be part of the reason why there's no OS benefit, because they're finding some stuff that, you know, had you waited a little bit, it would have presented with symptoms and you would have gotten the same benefit mm -hmm. out of. So I think like there, you okay, know, I think I see. I see. you should at least know, yeah, yeah. you know, at least know that you might be, you know, you're, you, you know, it, it feels like, oh, we, of course, it's small cell, yeah, yeah. but at least have the humility to know that maybe, maybe, you know, question mark there. Yeah. But let's say, let's say a more classic picture. Somebody comes in in a motor vehicle accident and then they're found to have maybe four centimeter RCC on the kidney and like four pulmonary nodules, okay? And then we send the CT guy to biopsy and we biopsy the nodule, the nodule comes back, RCC, okay? Um, you can put them in the MSKCC, but what I'm gonna say is, um, you know, maybe your first step might be, this is low volume disease, um, you know, we can, you know, we can play the whole game about Carmina and, you know, the kidney mm -hmm. and what are we mm -hmm. going to do about that? But the question is, maybe the first thing you do is you watch them really close one month, two months, get a scan mm -hmm. and try to get a sense of what the tempo of the disease is mm -hmm. before you rush into a treatment. Mm -hmm. Because I maybe, see. who knows when you caught them? I see. You know what I mean? I see. And um, like pancreatic neuroendocrine tumor, often you find it, it's very indolent. You can watch them a long time. So in my mind, when you have these unique cases where people are sort of detected sort of incidentally, low volume disease, they're asymptomatic, truly asymptomatic. It was it truly incidentally found. Um, you know, 
I think you have to ask yourself, is there a randomized study in that disease that shows early upfront treatment improves outcomes? And if not, which is usually the case, maybe you should have a little humility to, under, to recognize that I'm not sure that treatment will improve this person's outcome versus add lead time hmm. and versus add therapeutic injury, a therapeutic burden. And maybe the best course is short interval follow-up to get some sense of the cadence, the, the tempo of the tumor. Hmm. Okay. What do you think? Yeah, no, I, I, I agree with you. But, uh, Has it happened to you in yeah. practice? Oh, I think it happens pretty uh, often. Pretty often. Pretty often. I, yeah. I mean, we have the referral bias, so yeah. but it, it, it happens pretty often to oncologists. And what do you do? You? Uh, yeah, I think it depends on the, I mean, with, for instance, in follicular, we have really clear data. Yeah. Uh, in some in some cases, we have really clear data. In some other cases, it's, uh, it's also, I think it's also the patient what the patient wants. Right. Uh, sometimes the patient even you can explain what you explained just now, but he will have a, a very clear choice in in one way or the other way. So I, I also think it's, uh, it's a of very important point. And I, and I yeah. I totally think that's that's correct. I worry that the way most doctors explain is, we found you have metastatic mm -hmm. kidney cancer. Either we, we get started with treatment right now while you're, while you're feeling good and mm. still able mm. to do it, mm. or we're gonna have to watch you and mm. who knows how you mm. might be next month. You know, it's all the, kind of how you, you say it. Is, you know, the way yeah, you explain uh, is key. Absolutely. Yeah, but, but I mean, you're right. It does happen from time to time. Yeah. And I think in the cancers I talk about, follicular, CLL. Colorectal cancer. Colorectal. Trials. Yeah, yeah, we do. And um, and now in CLL, you know, they have the new study on ibrutinib. Okay. In the old days, we had like the old crappy drugs like chlorambucil. We randomized to early treatment versus delayed treatment. They failed to show survival benefit. That's why in CLL, you know, we don't treat early. But now we replicated that with the ibrutinib. Yeah. I think it's into JCL. Okay. Um, or has it been? It's 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 uh, uh it, it just came out. And even ibrutinib has failed early, okay. which is a much more okay. potent yeah, drug, yeah, yeah. right? So this is the reason why. Look, in all the indolent lymphomas you know, follicular marginals mm -hmm. on CLL. Mm -hmm. There's this huge, and even Waldenstrom's, there's this huge room for observation. Why? Mm -hmm. Why is there a huge, huge room for observation? Because the people who treat those cancers for 40 years have the sense to know that the person feels fine and this is incurable anyway. What am I doing by treating them with some drugs that make them feel worse without proof that they'll live longer, live better, okay? They always understand, you know? Maury Gertz understands in Waldenstrom's and CLL they understand and Flicker they understand. And when they had doubt, they ran randomized trials. They failed to show benefit. Mm. And so who are we to come and start treating early? Mm. I know who we are. We are the people getting paid by pharma. Mm. And so that's mm. why pharma has the incentive to treat the asymptomatic mm. people mm. of the world. Um, but it's up to the doctors to realize that, you know, I don't know if we have good evidence. And the history of cancer, as I detail in this, sec in this chapter, shows that you should be cautious. You should be cautious. Okay, fair point. Next point, very interesting. I think very important for fellows, I would say. For everybody, but for fellows, I think it's a very important point. How far you will investigate? Yeah, how hard to investigate. How hard to investigate. You know, and uh, if I'm allowed to talk a little bit more about this. Um, okay, this is go beyond, on, I, I don't think I wrote this in the book, so maybe it'll be interesting to people. We, in academic medicine, we really value the diagnostician. You know, throughout the last 30, 40 years in academic medicine, there's always been one or two or three or four, and we've got some here at UCSF and there are people elsewhere who are like the consummate diagnostician. They're the ones that go up and stump the professor, they call the segment. Stump the professor. They go up there on stage and they sit there and they say, I've got a 42-year-old man. He came in with fevers, night sweats and chills. His white count was 14.2 and uh, his LDH was 448. What questions do you have for me? Go. 
And they're like, oh, any foreign travel did he go to this country? Did he go to this you know, you know what I mean. And then like the diagnosis is uh, the differential is uh, the differential pretty includes long. this this pretty long, pretty long. And then finally, at the end, they're like, and my final diagnosis is even though the patient had um, multiple negative suspicion tests, of this, um, suspicion of that, it is uh, it is falciparum. And then they say, correct, correct, it's falciparum, malaria, plasmodium falciparum. <laughs> you know, it's always it's always so dramatic. And everyone's like, <laughs> okay, I appreciate that too. I do. I really do. It's pretty cool, actually, when you see people do it, and you really wonder. Yeah, there's some uh, some great Twitter account I'm following right now with a great diagnostician. Really? Yeah. Okay. Good. With Aaron and. Uh, uh, yeah. yeah. Good. Okay, but 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 <laughs> of but. course, there's a but. There's a but. The but is, you know, in oncology we do something different. Okay, and I don't think people have actually given it the credence it deserves. Which is that when you tell me about the patient, you tell me about they had a history of what, whatever cancer, and that you tell me about they had a history of this cancer. Uh, in my mind, I know, oh, they had a history of papillary thyroid cancer. And it was how big was it? Oh, okay, I already know. I know the entire natural history of that. I know that you know, okay, I'm overdiagnosed. And you tell me the history. They had a mammogram. They had a you know eight millimeter DCIS. Uh huh. Uh huh. Okay, mammogram eight millimeter DCIS. Or um, one day they were in the shower and they felt a lump, um, or they had something drained from the nipple and it was a two centimeter mat. You know, I I know what that means. Okay. The difference between real, you know, rip-roaring cancer or indolent biology, incidental finding, I know all this means. Okay, then you tell me the story about the patient, what tumor they have, what's going on, where does it go? And I know, you know, how long they've had the disease, what drugs they've gotten, what's the probability of spreading to different organs. I know, and, and you know, there's no, there's no biological model that will fully tell you all the places. Like I, you know, you and I both know where does non-small cell lung cancer like to metastasize to? Where does breast cancer like to metastasize to? Where does prostate cancer like to metastasize to? So many times when we've been on service together and you've been shouting me on service, we go, I look at the imaging and I say, you know, I, I have a yeah. feeling, I have a feeling, I know it. Th this mm. is not how it behaves. Not, okay, so we have all that information. And then I know one more thing. If you treat this now, what's the evidence? What's the delta survival? Which treatments, treatments now have a big delta survival? And if we let it go longer, the delta survival gets shorter with treatment. So which are, the, which are the things that we're dealing with, these problems that we're dealing with, that if we act upon it urgently right now, we are likely to get more bang for our buck than if we act upon it later. I know all that too. I memorized a lot, you know, you memorized a lot. And then, so when we approach the patient, we're not in this business that they're in, you know, which is a very nice, I mean, I, I, wanna, I, I don't want to take away from what they do. I think it's brilliant and I, you know, I, I really do, I really do enjoy the show. I'm eating popcorn when I see them solve the diagnosis. But we're not in the diagnosis business. We're in the outcome optimization business. And the outcome optimization business means insofar as it's meaningful and will improve your life, I'll give you, I'll pursue and I'll give you the diagnosis. Insofar as I can come up with a treatment that has a big delta treatment effect, I'll pursue those diagnoses. But insofar as these findings are not germane or not relevant to your longevity, these findings are ancillary or tangential, these findings may be incidental omas, these findings may be tangential, these findings may be, um, you know, uh, a happenstance, the findings may actually, the pursuit of them may actually take away from your survival, I won't pursue those things. So I know how hard to investigate which, which mass should be biopsied and which can be left alone. When you should pursue the biopsy, when you could just see how they do when you need to order the lab test today and when you can give it over the weekend and then order if it doesn't get better i think you simplify this by by asking the simple question what will i do differently according to the result i will have yeah and i, I think, think that's a, a really basic question you should ask always when you are treating patient because at the end of the day the patient will undergo the procedure or maybe the even the blood draw i mean it's not nothing so this question of what i will do differently 
is there a possibility I can do something differently in the benefit of the patient? Absolutely. Yeah. And like, what if this test comes back this versus this, what will I do differently? And one more. Is it benefit? <laughs> How much will it matter? Yeah. Is it beneficial? How much will it matter? How much will it matter? And you know, that's the thing that the internist knows, will I do it differently? But, and, and, but I don't think they know the same way the oncologist knows, how much will it matter? That, that it, how much will it matter? And so ultimately, if you really think about this, this is a really complex decision tree. At the ends of the decision tree are like weights. Are like the, it's, like, it's weighted by the probability of these events occurring. And it's also weighted by like the delta treatment effects of what we can yeah. do. And the, uh, the, the prognosis of the patient, the yeah. condition of the patient, yeah. preference of the patient again. So I think it's a, it's a very important point you are making here. In the book, I think, you know, I try to make yeah. it simple. Yeah. But recently, you know, we have a situation where... You know, there's something that you might want to biopsy, but mm -hmm. there's also something mm -hmm. that, you know, you might want to treat. And so you get into this balancing act, which is like, how many days do you treat this empirically before you go ahead and biopsy? Well, it depends. How risky is it to biopsy? Once you get that result, what can you do with that result? How harmful is it to just treat and yeah. watch? Yeah. And, you know, and that's the art and, and that's the beauty of yeah. oncology. Yeah. yeah. You know, that's the beauty of oncology. And that's actually the thing that the diagnosticians, as, as talented as are they, they can't do it because they don't know all the delta treatment effects. You know, I mean, there's so many chemotherapy drugs. There's so many things. Mm -hmm. So many times this week where the choice of what to do, yeah. you know, was based yeah. on the Delta yeah. treatment. Yeah. You know, we talked yeah. so very many times often, often. Where, where I say, you know, if I, if, if, I, if I go two days and then treat it, what's going to be different? Mm -hmm. And you say, not much, mm -hmm. not much. But yeah. other times you say, oh, the world, it matters. If you're going to do it, you got to yeah. do it now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you're going to do it, you got to do it now. Absolutely. So you know that. And so that's what I think is how hard to investigate, how hard to push, how hard to test. That's part of being an oncologist. It's probably the most interesting part. And cognitively, I think it's just as hard as stump the prof. It's just as hard as stump the prof. It just is not something that's even taught or recognized. And I, I, you know, to be honest, I've never heard anyone even say it. Really? Yeah, I think it's really coming with experience also. Yeah. With a lot of clinical experience. I think a lot of experienced oncologists do it, but I've never yeah. heard anyone articulate yeah. Yeah, that yeah, they, kind of that's what they're doing. Yeah. Um, the last point in this yeah. chapter, I don't know if you want to make another chapter today or not. Mm -hmm. The last point we can either move on or take I'll it briefly. Point, talk it briefly point. is about chemo prevention. Chemo prevention. So you, well, you make the oh, case of there's why, no such thing yeah. as chemo prevention. Yeah. So you make basically you make the case of why you don't think <laughs> there is a case for chemo prevention. Yeah, and I guess I mean, what is the idea? The fundamental conceit of chemo prevention is you're going to take a healthy person and give them a drug like raloxifene or something like that in the hopes of preventing cancer number X, cancer, whatever it is, insert your cancer. And uh, salicoxib for colon cancer, or raloxifene for breast cancer, cancer X. But the challenges I have, and you know, to be honest, I think I write it much better in the book because I had a chance to really marinate on it, but uh, the best I remember, you know, the best I remember, is um, the challenges I have is, if you're a healthy person, what do you really care about in life? You care about cancer X, sure, but you also care about heart attacks, strokes, and diabetes, and Everything else, COVID. You probably care about COVID quite a bit too. <laughs> it's, not, it's not a COVID, but I mean, you might care about it a lot too. You know, who knows? You, but you care about everything. The totality of human health. Yes, you care about cancer X. Yes, your loved one may have died of cancer X, but you also care about other stuff too. So that's what a healthy person cares about. And a drug may have effects on cancer X. It may increase it or decrease it, but it often has effects off target. It may also have effects on the cardiovascular system. It may also have effects on diabetes. It may also have effects on, I don't know, even COVID. The, the rates of getting COVID. I hear that fluvoxamine is mired mm. in debate, but mm. fluvoxamine is a psychiatric drug. Mm. But they try and go, okay, anyway, you see my point. So then I ultimately think, 
and this chapter argues that chemo prevention is a, is a false construct. Why? Because chemo prevention means giving a drug to a healthy person to prevent a cancer. But, but healthy people care about everything and a drug can do more than affect a cancer. So ultimately, every chemo prevention drug is just a drug given to a healthy person. What does that mean? It means if you have healthy people and you give them drug that has a net aggregate benefit in overall survival, health-related quality of life, then have at it and do it, and that's wonderful. And if you give them a drug that doesn't have a survival benefit and doesn't have a health-related quality of life benefit, then don't do it. You know, it doesn't matter if it lowered one cancer, if it increased the rates of stroke, that offsets it, you know? And so this whole point was just a point about reminding us that all people, but especially healthy people, they care about the totality of healthcare outcomes and that interventions really have to be judged by everything they do. And chemo prevention trials, I think, are fundamentally wrong because they only measure one thing in the universe of outcomes. They could be missing a 1.25 increased risk of stroke or heart attack. Mm -hmm. They may not have the sample size to de detect that. That would be a dangerous error. So we need really large, randomized chemo prevention trials. And I think this is based on work I did with Marie Diener West, who is... Um, I think for a while she was the head of statistics at Johns Hopkins University um, and taught in the Master's of Public Health program. We published a paper on this uh, in the Canadian Medical Journal, I think. Uh, is that roughly what I said in the book? What yeah, did I say? Yeah, roughly. Um, actually, it's, um, it's a kind of, I think it's a kind of the same logic in, in this chapter of, again, the continuum of, um, continuum of uh, diseases, continuum of uh, conditions. You can have healthy people, you can have people with a very advanced cancer, which are very symptomatic. And, and I think you are, you are really trying to make some kind of general principles according to these uh, principles and not just stacking to very fixed categories. Yeah. Am I, am I, oh, I think summarizing? Right. And you know, my well? hope is that when you read this chapter, you didn't say, I'd never heard that you felt like, ah, yeah. That's yeah, true. You, you you felt it, yeah, and, and and then you read it. You you feel the same. I mean, I mean, because I mean, you're I, you're I, the I, audience. When, you, when when I read it, yeah, I, I felt many of these things without having read it. Yes, exactly. It. That's and what I, I was really happy and enjoying reading it in, in you know with all the explanations and, and it puts the, words yeah. to what you yeah, felt. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the listener should know that when he read the book, we don't actually know each other. No, no. right. He read the book before he even met me, and before yeah. we even exchanged an email, and yeah. um. You know, he read the book year, years before we met. Yeah. Um, so, so his point is that, I mean, that's my goal. My goal is that somebody who's a thoughtful oncologist out there reads it and they say something like, hey, yeah, this is articulating and, what I've always felt. And, and also I feel it's uh, becoming rarer and rarer to, to try to, to have some general rules, these kind of rules, and I think it's very important. Very important. I mean, yeah. and you know from when we've been on service together over the last year, and I, I hope that people don't feel like that they, people may be wondering why I do it so much, but every time I make any decision, like why do I talk so much about it? I want the the trainees to hear yeah. my whole yeah, thought yeah, process. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. I'm really trying very hard. So I, that, I do the same. Yeah, you do, do the same when you're on yeah, service. Yeah. You want them to hear, like this is why we're doing what I'm doing. I'm, I'm going to walk you through how I'm talking. I'm going to yeah. talk you through my whole thought process so that, you know, hopefully maybe you, I, you I should have do that. Maybe if yeah. there was this situation, I, I would have do that. Yeah. But because of this, I don't do that. But because of this, I will do that. Yeah. I mean, there's all, all steps. Yeah, that. and then sort of walk them through the decision yeah, yeah, tree. Yeah. 
Now, of course, I don't do it as much with individual patients because I think it's often overwhelming. But with the tra- with yeah. the, somebody who's going to be a fellow in oncology, yeah. going to be an oncologist, yeah, I try to do as yeah. much as I can because they need to see why we're doing what we're doing. And you know what? I, I'm happy that they go to and the next oncologist. Maybe they do things slightly uh, yeah, differently. Uh, it's, yeah. it's, it's good I, for them. Yeah, and there, there's not one truth. I mean, there's not one but truth. But yeah. it's interesting to see how you make a decision. Correct. And to, and to try to teach. That. I mean, yeah, there's not yeah. one truth, but yeah. but our decisions are, they are better. <laughs> I mean, am I, they are better. And I want to say one last thing before we go on, because I want to say about this. Um, I was listening to, you know, that Akhil Amar podcast, mm-hmm. and he said two things I really like. One, he said, what is a professor? You're a professor. You define yourself as a professor. And now I'm a professor. Yeah. Yeah, I've yeah. I finally. You're the 1st of July. That's right. The first, as a, it's, retro, it's a retroactive. Retro, yeah, retro, I'm a full yeah. professor. Okay, so what does it mean to be a professor? But he said, he said a professor is someone who they profess the truth as they see it. They mm-hmm. profess the truth as they see it. And I said, that's it. The professor is like, what do you value about a professor? This is somebody who, you know, you don't always have to agree with them or disagree, but this person should be feel committed to like profess the truth as you see it. And the next thing he said, he's interested in something totally different. But he said, when I set out to do this work on, on constitutional law, I want it to be both panoramic and deep. Mm. Like every, mm. lots of people are the expert on RCC or the mm. expert on bladder cancer or the expert on, you know, he says the expert on the First Amendment or the 15th mm. Amendment or this. He said, I wanted to be the expert on these things, but also I want to be panoramic mm. to see mm. what you can draw from connecting mm. the dots. And you know what? I hate to say, but that's really felt like so true to me because that's what malignant sought to do. I want to yeah. be deep. And in everything yeah. we write about, all the papers we write, we want to be as deep on Checkmate 816 yeah. as anyone else, but we also want to be panoramic. We want to see all the trials. We want to see all the multiplicity, understand the whole thing, but we also want to be deep, deep and panoramic. It takes a lot of time, and that's what it he talks about. It takes a lot of time, yeah. Yeah. You but listen to this episode? No, no, no. Oh, uh, yeah. yeah. I listened to some episodes, and I really feel it's really nice, uh, the, the thinking, uh, and he's explaining all the things. He's explaining very complex things in a total uh, other world for me, uh, constitutional yeah. law. And uh, yeah, but, but I agree with you. I guess I feel like a, and, and a kinship. You can, you can understand. I mean, yeah. he's explaining in a way you... But can. aren't we trying... To, we're trying to do what he's trying to do, except in our little domain. Yeah, yeah you're right. He, he, he's trying to take... There's all these amendments. This constitution is so complicated and everyone's an expert on a little bit. Yeah. I want to be an expert on all these little bits and tell you why it all makes yeah. sense and ties yeah. together so that when you're out there with a question on a bit that no one's ever talked about, you can kind of make yeah. sense of it. Yeah. And that's what we're trying to do with oncology. That actually... And I do think there's a downside for people being, I'm the breast and I'm the myeloma. I only do myeloma. I only talk myeloma. I only talk RCC. I only talk kidney. There's a big downside to being like that. You really are missing the perspective that comes from seeing all these the examples in the book are you know follicular CLL colon R, and I think I cite that paper by Keith Flaherty in RCC if I recall correctly yeah, yeah. Um, uh, but 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 they're not in every tumor type because not every tumor type has that study we're going to talk in another chapter CA 125 yeah. that's only an ovarian but well, the next chapter yeah next topic okay all right well but but it applies to yeah, you have the suspense yeah it applies to a lot of things so Rustin paper New England Journal of Medicine so so I guess I only um, some final final thoughts. Well, so I only broke my my rule once. We, what was your rule once? Not, oh yeah, not yeah, to once. Curse. But, but Al- almost not. Almost not. But almost uh, not. But it was just because you didn't understand SOL. And next time maybe will be better. Maybe next time maybe it'll be better. Hope springs eternal. Um, final thoughts on this. These two chapters are getting into it thinking about trials, thinking about this, and then what's the next chapter? It's like famous so, historical so, studies. Yeah, so next chapter will be famous famous trials with, uh, for each trial, I selected one because you give many examples, but yeah. I selected one okay. for each topic. Yeah. And um, kind of uh, 
each trial demonstrates something that may be counterintuitive or, or provo provoking result, but it's an example. I mean, I think it's a very important chapter. The next chapter will be global, global oncology, mm -hmm. and then we'll come to the last section of the book, solutions. Oh, that's good. Okay, so then my last thought here is that, and it has been unspoken, Many of these principles that we talk about in this chapter are principles that if you go back 30 years ago, every oncologist would mostly agree with you that these principles are there. But something has happened in the last 10 or 15 years, and we increasingly stray from these principles. And that, I believe, is the juggernaut of corporate interests in this space. Because not treating somebody who feels fine, not extending therapy based on PFS, not combining drugs that were previously used in sequence based on PFS, um, you know, what was the other one? Uh, not uh, combining, extending, extending not, chemo, not, chemo prevention, yeah, not treating early, uh, working up everything and treating everything. You know, these are all things that make someone rich. They make somebody rich. They make the company rich. But do they make the patient better off? And 30 years ago, they understood that if you're going to switch from sequential single agents to combinations, you got to show me OS or health related quality. You can't just show me deeper response. Are you kidding me? Of course, it's going to be deeper. You ate your breakfast, lunch and dinner all in the first rest stop. Now you're going to be hungry the rest of the journey. What are you, crazy? Of course you're more full. The time until you eat your next meal is longer. But you got nothing to eat in the bag. Of course, that's obvious. You know, these are principles that were there. People knew these principles. Uh, that PFS may not be the perfect moment to stop. People yeah, have asked yeah, that question. Yeah. But we are forgetting these principles. Why? Because the companies. And also, I think this could be a great question for co cooperative groups. I mean, yeah. I mean, yeah, I think a cooperative group could easily randomize people to when to stop or to continue, especially in a space where there are very few treatment there options. There are some treatments now uh, trying to see where you can stop the immune checkpoint inhibitors, things like that. And, yeah, I mean, and I mean, that's a great example. Our friend told, told us about one trial like that. Yeah, oh yeah, yeah, that's a great example. And yeah. I guess I would say that the imatinib, like stop uh, imatinib and nivolumab studies, mm -hmm. uh, sorry, just imatinib and, and dasatinib stop, stopping studies. Um, but but one thing I would say about, about that is that I mean, it really was the opposite problem that Ippy was a fixed course. And then the first lesson they learned when they went to Nevo was you mm, fix that course, mm, you fix your mm. profit. Let's keep it going, buddy. Mm, and mm. it's been very difficult. And, you know, they have that one, the one lung cancer study where they argue that indefinite is better than stopping mm, it, you know, mm. but it's very limited data. Um, and you really want to see that in every single tumor type, I think. Uh, anyway, all right. Let's, um, particularly in the tumors that you think you're really getting a deep something, MSI high melanoma, things like that, you know, that there's something you're doing yeah. and once it's done, it's done. Yeah. Um, all right. I think that's a really nice summary of chapter 10. Yeah. Any chapter final 10. thoughts, Timothy? No, um, I, th I hope listener will enjoy. Thank you again for doing this. Uh, again, uh, again, this book was really transformative for me and, uh, you you didn't pay me uh, to to say this. I didn't pay you to <laughs> say that. And uh, this chapter, I mean, this chapter, I really enjoyed them because I felt something before, and and uh, it was really enjoy enjoyable for that. So on that positive note, on that positive note, we're out until next time. We're back, and we're talking more more famous trials in oncology. Then we got global oncology. Then we got the solutions. The solutions are the best part. Until next time. Until next time. <laughs>